Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Back, back, back at it. Greetings. Max, uh, what's going on with the show this week? This week on the show, I got Andrea Valdez. She is the editor-in-chief of The 19th, which is a brand new two-week-old news organization. They're covering politics and policy from a lens of uh, gender equity. And Andrea, who before this was the editor-in-chief of the Texas Observer, and before that was at Wired.com, running that website. Before that, she was at Texas Monthly for 10 years, is now the uh, the editor-in-chief of the 19th, which again has been around for two weeks and already has at least one major news event, which is uh, they got the first interview with Kamala Harris after she was tapped to be Biden's VP. It's really one of the most exciting publication launches in a long time. There aren't that many publication launches anymore. So it's uh, it's nice that that is even happening. Well, we talked about, you know, both those things. One, launching something in the middle of a pandemic, which is uh, not easy. They recruited basically the entire staff over the course of the quarantine. Andrea was in the office for three weeks, a total of three weeks before it shut down. So we talked about like how you actually just launch something in this moment. But then also, you know, she's been in magazines since 2006. She had this 10 year run at Texas Monthly. And we talked about sort of like what it's like to come up in magazines in this moment and be launching something right now that's ambitious and optimistic and doing that while so many people are losing their jobs and the industry seems to be contracting. So uh, there was a lot to talk about with her and uh, I'm so glad we got a chance to. If you've got a career uh, like Andrea's in which you have worked many places and uh, attracted a devoted audience who wants to follow your new endeavors, maybe consider an email newsletter. It's a way people can keep track of you for the rest of your life. Uh, do it with MailChimp. They make it simple. They're going to be around. They're reliable. And they make the show possible. Thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Max with Andrea Valdez. Andrea, thanks for uh, coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I feel like uh, this is a challenging time for you to take like an hour to talk because you just launched a whole crazy thing. We did. So, uh, yes, we launched the 19th News website uh, two weeks ago, almost exactly to this moment. Uh, we were celebrating virtually and toasting to each other the um, successful launch of our website. It was live to the internet. It did not crash. It did not come down. It was very thrilling that we had our own website um, up at 19thnews.org. Two weeks ago. And uh, I imagine they've been just a restful, easy, casual couple of weeks. Absolutely. Yeah. Nothing's happened in the last two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really want to talk about the 19th and I want to talk about what you and the folks you're working with are trying to do there 
and also I'm really interested just like logistically in how you launch something in the middle of a pandemic. But before we get there, I was hoping we could just kind of walk through your career a little bit. How did you get into magazines in the first place? How'd you get your start? Yeah, I mean, not to do the let's go all the way back, but just to get a sense of kind of what took me to publishing as an industry in the first place, I was an English major at college at the University of Texas here in Austin, which is where I am now. And I was an English major and like many English majors began to realize about halfway through my college career that you kind of have to choose a path. And the paths really seemed to be lawyer, which was more school. It was, you know, be a teacher, which was also probably more school, or I could be a journalist. And so I wasn't a part of my college paper, The Daily Texan, which is a really terrific college paper. And I feel like I did kind of miss out on some seminal experience by not being a part of that. But I, I did do um, some work with an off-campus magazine that kind of got me thinking about magazines in general, which was something I had always liked. I grew up reading magazines. I liked magazines. You know, I had a subscription to The New Yorker in college because it felt like the thing that people would do and they were trying to <laughs> seem like they were smart, which is what I was trying to do. Um, and so, yeah, that was really kind of my first taste of what publishing was like. And I ended up applying to go to Northwestern University. So I did end up going to have more school. Um, and I went there and I was part of the magazine track. And I really fell in love with it. And actually, another graduate of Northwestern University um, was Evan Smith, who was at the time the editor of Texas Monthly. And so he came actually to the campus to do a sort of just meet and greet and get to know the students and talk to us a little bit about his career and, and who, you know, how he had come from, you know, being a grad student to being the editor in chief of Texas Monthly and being someone who was from Texas. I really wanted to meet him. And he agreed to, you know, spend about 15 minutes having coffee with me. And he said, you know, when do you graduate? Um, there's actually going to be a position open for a fact checker. You should apply for it. So I applied for the position and so luckily got it. And I started as a fact checker at Texas Monthly three days after I graduated from Northwestern. And this was in 2006, which I'm sure you can remember the time. It was when magazines were actually doing quite well. Things were looking really rosy in the industry. But very shortly thereafter is when the Great Recession started to kind of creep in. Um, 2007, 2008 is when things started looking really dire. And so I, I kind of always feel very lucky that I really skirted in right under the door to be a part of publishing and get what I thought it was an absolutely amazing job, especially as a fact checker, which I have always said is continued education for anyone who wants to be in magazine writing. Uh, there's so much there that I need to ask you about. <laughs> but but yeah, that's interesting. So you, you started in 2006, which means you basically had a like 18 month honeymoon where it seemed like you had landed in a very healthy and sustainable business. Yeah, it didn't seem very scary. And actually, the internet was also taking off. And so it seemed really exciting. God, I, that sounds really old to say in 2006, it feels really weird to say that it was taking off. It had taken off, obviously. But you know, it was at the time I was reading things like I would visit Slate on my RSS feed every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was things like that were happening. Yeah, 2006 is like the era when because I was working in alt weeklies then. And that was the era where like, you were just now starting to sort of like be able to convince editors that like, maybe there should be a blog. Yeah, I feel like that, exactly. that's like 2006 was like, let's have a big conversation about whether there should be a blog. And do we call it TKTK blog? <laughs> <laughs> it has to have the name blog in the name of the blog. Yeah. It, and if there's any chance of just um, collapsing the first two consonants of the publication name and then adding log, that would be that'd be great. Yeah, that's a very distinct, like, distinct time in publishing, I feel like. Um, but wait, I want to go back for a second. I have a couple questions before we even get there. So one of them was when you were at UT in an English major and felt like you could be a lawyer or a teacher or a journalist, were you writing then? No. I, so I guess if I went back even further, um, the reason that I really wanted to be an English major, I actually had started out as a social work major. I've always been someone who is really driven by service and service-oriented things. And social work felt like something that I could really apply that service-oriented part of my personal mission. And then I took an English class and I really loved it and realized you could be an English major not thinking too much about the consequences of what comes after that, because when you're 18, that's not really what you're thinking about. Um, <laughs> but what I really wanted to do and was 
read all the time. I really loved reading and I have loved reading my whole life. I grew up in a very like kind of bibliophile house. My dad was a big reader. My mom was a big reader. We spent a lot of time at the library. So that felt like a way to kind of extend my love of just being able to read, which feels very like leisurely and lovely to be able to say. And But I feel very blessed that I've been able to parlay that love into an actual an occupation where I read all day, for better or for worse. Sometimes reading is, you know, it's a little taxing, but it's, I love it. Yeah. I love it. So you grew up in Houston, you go to Austin for school, and then you go to Medill in Chicago. When you left to go, I mean, it was basically the first time you'd like lived outside of Texas, right? Was the hope to go back to Texas? Did you feel like you were going to end up somewhere else? How are you thinking about like your life geographically? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I didn't know. I, I loved Chicago. It felt kind of similar to Houston, actually, um, big and sprawling, but um, really diverse. And, you know, it had public transportation that felt very <laughs> easy to navigate. So that made it a little different than some of the cities here in Texas. But I guess, I don't know, maybe all good stories are love stories. That love is what, you know, brought me back to Texas. I was at the time engaged to the guy I'm now married to. And he stayed here in Austin and I was able to get a job to move back. Uh, and I really wanted to move back because he was here and I'm sure he would have moved to where I was going to move to, but, or I'm not sure of it. Who knows? Who knows how that might've turned out? It all turned out for, for the best. So I'm very lucky My to My whole life could have been different. <laughs> all right. So you get back and you, you take this fact checking job and aside from, you know, uh, having conversations, long conversations about whether there should be a blog. Like, what was it like to be at Texas Monthly in that time? Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. I loved Texas Monthly. I love Texas Monthly actively. Um, you know, I was there for 10 years. So when I started, like I said, Evan Smith was the editor-in-chief at the time. And he actually was the one who, um, he and another editor there, uh, Kate Rodeman, gave me the chance to write a column, actually. And the column was called The Manual. And the conceit of the column was that it was a one-page manual of how to do very Texas-centric things. So like how to make a Frito pie, how to ride a bowl, how to buy cowboy boots. And so that was kind of what gave me my first taste of writing for a magazine. And it was something short. It was kind of a, a piece that was in the front of the magazine that was supposed to be some lighter fare before you got to the features. And I loved doing that. I actually realized that I personally found reporting very difficult and writing very difficult. It actually made me realize that I wanted to be on the editor track because when I was fact-checking, fact-checking is a form of editing, right? And so it kind of helped me differentiate those two different paths and which path I wanted to be on. Wait, how so? How is uh, fact-checking a form of editing? Explain that to me. Yeah, so, you know, you'll find something and, you know, facts, it might not be like, okay, you had the date wrong. It might be more, you know, well, that's one way of interpreting it. Here's another way of interpreting it. What's the closest way to, you know, get to the fact of the matter, so to speak? And so you might offer some language that would, you know, help clarify or contextualize something. And so, you know, that is a form of editing, right? Offering edits, offering, you know, new turns of phrase, new new wording that helps make something just a little more accurate. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. 
calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. that decision to focus on editing rather than writing and reporting like I feel like um everyone feels like writing and reporting is difficult and I wonder why for you that made you want to be an editor like why not sort of push through that I guess yeah I think it was really a matter of maturation and as I've gotten older and more comfortable with myself and with my voice and um who I am I have gotten a lot more comfortable writing and editing you know I'm I'm naturally an introvert, I'd say, and pretty shy. And, you know, it is hard for me to just strike up a conversation with someone or ask someone really probing questions. I don't find it hard with my writers, <laughs> but with people I don't know, it, it had been a little tougher for me. And I have pushed through it over time, but it, I just wasn't ready then. Texas Monthly has um, gone through a fair bit of turmoil since 2006 and regime changes and new ownership and stuff. But when you got there, it was really still the same place it had been for the previous 30 years or so. This kind of like incredible magazine with all these legendary writers and, you know, incredible stories. The Texas Monthly Archive is like one of the great like journalistic gems in America, I think. What was the place like? Like, what was the culture of the magazine? Yeah. At Texas Monthly, I was very fortunate. You know, it is one of the few magazines that continues to have staff writers. Um, Many of those staff writers had been on staff for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And they were really familial. You know, they really wanted to create a familial atmosphere. And so um, it felt very collegial. It felt very um, warm and embracing. And I I think that really speaks to the dedication to uh, the quality of the journalism. And then I worked actually, you know, I was a fact checker for four years and then I ended up going into the digital side of things. And, you know, like so many places that were magazines that had a print outlet, you know, at first the website was kind of a repository for all your print stories. But you know, when I was there, we really wanted to push it into the next era. You know, I know we were joking about blogs, but of course, Texas Monthly had blogs, um, <laughs> you know, and it was one of those things where we wanted to have a more robust publishing cadence on the website. And so I was there to help kind of usher in that new era. And I am so grateful for it because it was a small place and one that was trying to kind of like so many outlets figure out how to navigate this new world where there was a, a rush of, to use the word content that people were putting up on websites. You know, what does our voice look like? Um, you know, what is our addition to um, this ecosystem? And I got to figure out so much. And because I was kind of in on the ground floor of what the website was going to look like there at Texas Monthly. And like for a long time, it felt like a a really small band of people who were trying to put a, a website up and out every day. And I got to be a part of that. So it felt a little bit like a startup inside of a big legacy organization. And for me, it allowed me to do so, so much and learn so, so much. And I feel really fortunate for that because, you know, a lot of places there's one person who does social media. There's one person who writes stuff. There's one person who edits things. And I got to do all of them. And at times it was overwhelming, but largely it was so informative. And I think it really made me a good utility player, which has really served me well in my career. And I'm so grateful for that. And what was your 
ambition then? Like w- when you were thinking about your career, what did, what did you want to be doing? <laughs> I mean, I knew I wanted to be on the editor track and I felt really actually like I was in a good space there and I was the editor of the website. So I got to oversee a lot of kind of the direction that the magazine was taking overall. And I got to do a lot of things that made me feel like I was really learning things all the time. And I really valued that. So I I really wanted to be an editor. I wanted to be, I guess, kind of like a a top editor, right? A deputy editor or executive editor, something along those lines. And I was there. So I was really, really pleased that my career trajectory took me to that spot. And did you like managing people? Yeah, I love managing people. And I know that's not for everybody. And it's something that I work really hard at. It's something that I've done a lot of um, training to get better at and something that I have learned from past mistakes. I've made mistakes at doing it. And what were the uh, what were the, like the early managerial mistakes you made? Um, some of the early managerial mistakes I made were one of the things that I did was I would hold on to stuff too long thinking that I could do it or I could do it all. And you can't, you've got to learn how to delegate and trust other people. And, you know, by not delegating, I frustrated the people whose work I might've been holding on to. I frustrated people who were really wanting to do more work and they felt like I wasn't giving them something to do. So that was a big one I learned. Tell me about the decision to leave Texas Monthly. Why did you go to be the editor of Wired.com? So Nick Thompson, who at the time was going to be the new editor at Wired, reached out to me, actually, which is insane to say that someone (laughs) reached out to me to inquire if I was interested in a position, but he did, and asked if I wanted to apply to, you know, be the editor there at Wired.com. And I said, yes, absolutely. So much of it was a matter of, I really was, I had been at Texas Monthly for 10 years. I kind of was ready to see if I could do something different, someplace different. I had admired Nick for a long, long time. You know, he was uh, the editor at thenewyorker.com, which not only do I love The New Yorker, but I was just so amazed by what he had done to, you know, make that site such a robust um, destination website. I read it constantly. So I had really admired him and I admired what he had done there. And another big thing was, you know, speaking of geography, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, it was an opportunity to move to California, which my husband and I had talked about moving to California and um, being open to that. And I have always been a little on the fence about whether or not to move to New York. And I have never actually lived in New York. And so a chance to be kind of adjacent to the media scene without having to be in the New York media scene was also appealing to me. It's interesting to hear you say that because I think that's part of what I was wondering about thinking about your time at Texas Monthly was like the degree to which New York or California or just like the sort of like magazine publishing industry writ large, like interacted with Texas Monthly, like how much of a character it was for you all there or whether it wasn't, you know, and did you feel like you had to go somewhere else to try it? Um, I mean, yes and no. I, you know, here's the thing about Texas is that it looms large in everybody's mind. It's a fascinating place. It's, you know, it was a republic. It is the Lone Star State. You know, Texas, it's a personality among the states. And I love Texas. <laughs> I mean, clearly I'm back in Texas right now. I love Texas. It is home. It has always been home. I'm so glad that I get to make it my home and get to do the work that I love. But, you know, I... I had lived in Chicago and I loved that for the, well, I lived actually in Evanston, which is a suburb of Chicago, but I got to experience a different city and I really appreciated that. And, you know, I wanted to experience another city too. I mean, you know, I think that's um, something that I've really valued to round out my personal life is to, you know, see and be in new places. And so, you know, that was part of the allure to me too, is that I could go to San Francisco. And you went there and what was it like, your first job outside of Texas? Yeah, uh, it was hugely intimidating. It was, you know, it did feel like going to kind of the next level, the national level. You know, Texas Monthly is a national magazine and does national caliber work and wins national magazine awards, as everyone knows. So it's not to say that I didn't feel like I was already part of national media, but it is, you know, Wired is international in a lot of ways. They actually have international arms of the publication. And, you know, they are reporting on and writing about um, hugely important, influential stories. And I didn't know, I mean, I knew a little bit about tech. And, you know, I I had a first iPhone. I had the iPhone 1. Was that what it was called? I had an, an original <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> so I don't think that was a qualifying factor in my interview to get the job, honestly. 
But, you know, I knew a little bit about technology, but not a ton. And so it was really intimidating, to be completely frank, to start at um, this revered publication with these extraordinarily smart editors and writers, um, some of whom had been there for many, many years, and, you know, try and um, figure out and navigate that topic. I mean, it's, it's the deep end for sure. Yeah. What was that first day like? You know, I can't remember the first day, I'll be honest. Um, I mean, I really have more of a sense of like the first six months. And the first six months was really figuring out just what the tone and tenor of Wired was. Like I had read it and I knew it, and um, but I had not been, you know, in it every single day. I had not been in that subject material every single day. So I read a ton of old Wired stories, which are really great. Old Wired is great. New Wired is great. It's, you know, a great publication. And, um, but I read a lot of archive stories. I would take home magazines and read them. Um, you know, I was up there by myself. My husband actually stayed here in Austin. Um, his job just kept him here. And so, you know, he was going to move up there eventually. But the first six months I was there, you know, just me. And so I had a lot of time to get to know the city, get to know the publication. And the other thing that, you know, I spent a lot of time doing was just trying to get to know the team. It was a bigger team than I had ever worked with before. There at the time um, were about 30 editors and writers that I was um, working with, which uh, was just much, much larger staff than I had ever worked with or managed before. But yeah, half the newsroom is in New York, half the newsroom is in San Francisco. So it was also navigating how to create relationships in a virtual environment. Uh, it was actually weirdly very relevant experience at this moment that we find ourselves in now. Yeah, where I was just going to say, yeah. This. Yeah, when would that ever come up again and be handy? Um, yeah. I just want to sit in it for one more second because it just feels like it must be so different to go to a brand new publication, a brand new city, and come in as, you know, one of the bosses. Yeah, no, I, it, it was, it was really hard and I had a lot of imposter syndrome. I'm, you know, I guess I just faked it until, you know, I made it enough and, um, <laughs> felt comfortable enough, but I do have to say that so much of it was a testament to the staff that was already there. I mean, they were already doing incredible work. They just continued doing incredible work and, you know, I just happened to be around. <laughs> well, when you, yeah, when you come into a place like that, that's like so kind of stood up and defined in a way, right? You know, like Wired has this long legacy and particularly like even the website, it wasn't like an afterthought in the way that some of the other magazine websites were. How do you navigate like the tension between making sure that it continues to deliver what readers expect while also like putting your stamp on it? That's a good question. I don't know if I feel like I would want to put my stamp on it. I think a good organization is the sum of its parts. And, you know, yeah, you want to see a vision and you want to see the broader themes and narratives and, you know, coverage areas that you are getting out of a place. But I always felt very fortunate to be there at a time when um, the narrative around tech at large was a, so prevalent in the nation and in the, in the world's mind. You know, people were really questioning the role of some of these big tech companies, say, out of the election or, you know, how integral they had become in our lives just in general. And so it felt like the nation was really ready to talk about a lot of these topics and Wired was right there at the forefront, ready to discuss them and illuminate them. And so I felt very fortunate to be there at that moment in 2017. I really do think that for me, at least, it was a right time, right place kind of thing. But you didn't stay. And so you, uh, you were at Texas Monthly 2006 to like 2016. Then you go to Wired, Nick writes you an email, and you upend your life, moved to San Francisco, and then three years later, came back. Yeah. Um, it was about two years later. Um, oh, my fault. and I always felt like I, you know, I could have spent so much more time at Wired. I, I miss it all the time. I, I love Wired. I, uh, what really drew me away was I had an opportunity come up to be the editor in chief at a small nonprofit here in Austin called the Texas Observer, which has been around for 65 years and is a largely investigative uh, outlet. Um, they do a lot of investigative reporting, a lot of political reporting, and I could be the editor in chief of that. And I am, as I said, a giant fan of Texas. I love Texas. I know Texas really well. I know the beat really well. And a chance to come back and see if I could run the show was just too enticing to pass up. And, you know, I just didn't know if that chance would come around again. Did they come to you? 
Yeah. So, you know, it's a small Texas media circle, right? And there's, you know, yeah. a few people that I think that just kind of stay in touch and someone reached out and said, you know, this might be a long shot, but would you at all be interested in in this position? And I thought about it and I thought, yeah, I could go back home. I could be reporting on local issues. I'm a huge proponent of local journalism. Um, and I know that Texas isn't necessarily local, it's regional, but it is kind of local. And to be back in that ecosystem was really enticing. And so that's why I said yes. And then you had to say yes again, like <laughs> <laughs> very quickly. So tell me about how the 19th started and how you got involved. Yeah. So I know the timing was, it was really hard. I had been at the Observer just a few months and the CEO of um, the 19th, who actually had been the editor in chief of the Texas Tribune at the time, approached me last year and asked if I would be, you know, possibly interested. And I was really reluctant to say yes, because I had just taken this other job and I was beginning to get my groove and I really loved the staff and I really believed in the mission and I really wanted to do that. But, you know, I guess honestly what ended up happening is, you know, one of the few things I'm more passionate about than being a Texan is being a woman and the idea of getting to start a news organization that was really thinking about marginalized communities um, and speaking to them and speaking about issues of gender equity was just really, like I said, with the Observer job, this was enticing too. Timing is not always what you want it to be. So give me the, um, give me the basics on the 19th. What is the mission of the place? So the 19th is a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom that's reporting on the intersection of uh, gender politics and policy. I can understand why that timing was hard. But can you tell me a little bit more about what was so exciting about the the sort of like concept of the 19th? Like what, what made it feel like it was something you couldn't pass up? Yeah. Being able to start something was really appealing to me. To not have any history or legacy is actually really daunting. There's no archives to read, which had been my crutch at Wire. And it was my crutch when I was at The Observer. I read a lot of archive stories at The Observer, too. And that is both kind of scary because when you go into something, there's nothing to familiarize yourself with its tone and its voice. But the flip side is that you get to create that. And that was something that I recognized was not a chance that you got to do every day. And then I was really, frankly, inspired by the team to start with and then the promise of beginning to hire out um, additional writers and editors uh, across the nation was also hugely enticing, just knowing that, you know, we had the momentum behind us and get to build something in the vision that we want to see it. That doesn't come around every day. So when did you say yes? I said yes, the end of last year, around the holidays. Wow. And then and then what happened next? So what do you what do you do once you actually start? So I started at the beginning of February. I think, I believe February 3rd was my first day. And wow. <laughs> yeah, what an innocent time February was in 2020. And funny enough, I had already had a vacation, a week-long vacation planned uh, for the end of February. So the first three weeks was kind of responding to emails, beginning to put out job descriptions, um, you know, reach out to people who, you know, we thought might be a good fit for some of the positions, you know, beginning to build out the newsroom. And then I went on vacation um, for a week. And when I got back the next week, the pandemic was really in full, beginning to be in full force. And the 19th was going to be based in Austin, like you were going to go into an office every day. Yeah, that was the idea. So based here in Austin, headquartered in Austin, we had always known that we would hire a, a distributed newsroom. So we'd have people over all over the nation, but that, yeah, the core group of us would be here in Austin in, in an actual building working, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And you got to do that for all of three weeks. Yeah, that's about right. So how do you do this? How do you launch a publication in a pandemic? Um... Uh, it was hard. So we started, I mean, the first thing we did was stop and assess, like, how much do we grow right away? What do we do? Do we take a pause and, you know, kind of evaluate things right now and, and maybe delay some of the launch? But even in the first month, in the first, 
six weeks, two months, it began to be very clear that actually what was happening was underscoring the mission. Women have been disproportionately impacted in the pandemic. You know, right now we're looking at the America's first female recession. It's the first time that women have seen double-digit unemployment since 1946, when the Bureau of Labor Statistics began tracking that statistic. You know, women are disproportionately suffering from anxiety and depression. It's, you know, close to 50% of women versus, I think, 36% of men. You know, women are shouldering the burden of childcare. You know, Latinas are the highest group of unemployed people in the country. I think 20% of Latinas are unemployed right now, 16% of Black women. All of that really began to underscore how important it was for us to tell these stories. And so we just charged full steam ahead. We began the process of hiring people. You know, we had had, we were very fortunate to have several hundred applicants for the eight jobs, eight reporting jobs that we had. Um, We had a partnership with the Washington Post um, and that had been outlined before the pandemic. And Erin Haynes, our first reporter, she began writing stories that we were publishing on the Post as soon as we had another reporter, Amanda Becker, our congressional reporter, um, or our Washington correspondent. She began writing stories that we were running on the Post. And then we began hiring and, and kind of coming up with our editorial calendar for what stories we were going to tell in the first uh, you know, six weeks of being a news organization and how we were going to cover the lead up to the election. And then, you know, right now it, it's it's such a strange thing to say, but, you know, I feel like right now we are so necessary because we are looking at the third uh, vice presidential female candidate to be on a major party ticket uh, and uh, first woman of color to be on a major party ticket. And that feels like it's a story that, you know, we are here to tell. And you got the first interview with Kamala Harris after she got nominated. We did. So we had uh, a summit, uh, the 19th represents this past week. It was a five day long summit. And on Friday, we were fortunate enough to have Kamala Harris speak with Erin Haynes. And yes, it was the first interview she had granted with a, a news publication since the announcement of being the vice presidential candidate. Not a bad scoop. <laughs> no, it was, it was, you know, it was planned. And then this news happened and then it felt especially grand. Yeah, that's pretty good for your uh, the end of your second week in existence. But I, I want to go back, particularly actually to the hiring process. And one part of that I wonder about is how doing everything virtually affected how you went about hiring people. But the second was what you're looking for in these eight reporters you've got to hire. So to the first question, the logistics of the hiring, of course, we planned on flying people in and you know, or or perhaps I would fly to go meet them and having a pretty normal hiring process. But as I said, we had always anticipated that we would have a distributed newsroom. You know, part of our mission is to be um, as diverse as possible, politically diverse, racially diverse, um, geographically diverse, socioeconomically diverse in our coverage and in our newsroom. And it's important to me, you know, having been fortunate enough to have a lot of my career be here in Texas, I am very sensitive to the fact that, you know, if the best person for the job happens to live in, say, Des Moines, Iowa, like our state house's reporter does, then that person can live in Des Moines, Iowa, and they will do great reporting from that place. And so logistically, we had already prepared ourselves mentally for having a attributed newsroom. But instead of being able to fly people in, we just did a lot of Zoom calls and a lot of phone calls. And then once the hiring, you know, was done, you know, what has been different is that you don't have all those serendipitous moments that I think a lot of people are missing in an office culture where you walk by someone's desk and you have those, you know, two or three minute long conversations where you kind of get to know someone. But you're really like creating culture. It's not just like keeping it going, you know, and I, and so it seemed like that particular aspect, even though it was always going to be distributed, must be a real challenge. Yeah, we've been really intentional about creating culture. Um, I think a lot of people are used to creating culture over Slack. So we have, in addition to our kind of working Slack rooms, we have, you know, Slack rooms that where we talk about recipes and where we, you know, talk about music and television. And, you know, we, we do that. Uh, you know, I, I am a huge fan of the phone and I know that not everybody is. But especially in the last six months, I've become a giant fan of just picking up the phone. And and so a lot of it is just being really intentional about creating that culture. And it's not always easy. And, you know, there are times where I feel like I could be talking to my writers more. And that's just something that I'm going to have to continue to work on and be really purposeful about. 
I cut you off. You're starting to tell me about how you went about hiring these eight reporters and whether there was something specific you were looking for. Yeah. I mean, people with ideas, I'd say, is the number one thing we were looking for. And that feels like such a no brainer thing to say about when you're hiring a reporter. But, you know, it was so much about, you know, what ideas do you have and what ideas do you have around, you know, the beats that we were hiring for and the primary beats that we've hired for are a congressional reporter, a state house's reporter, an economy reporter, a health reporter, an LGBTQ plus reporter, and then two general assignment reporters who have uh, started to kind of carve out their own sub beats. But really, it was a lot of, you know, thinking about what ideas that you have and then asking, you know, people to really think about how they would frame that in a way that speaks to gender equity and uh, thinking about, for us, what we have been calling the asterisk in the story. Yeah, help me understand the asterisk. So the actual name of the website is the 19th with an asterisk. What does the asterisk represent? Yeah, so um, our namesake is the 19th Amendment, which is the amendment that granted women the right to vote. But we recognize that even when that amendment passed, that some did not get full access to the ballot. And the asterisk is our way of recognizing that the 19th Amendment remains unfinished business, actually. And so that's the reason that we have the asterisk in our logo. But when I talk about the asterisk editorially, what I'm talking about is what makes this a 19th story? And I can give you an example of that. When Breonna Taylor was killed, we had one of the first national stories about the case. There had been some really phenomenal local reporting, and I don't want to take away from that, so I want to stop and mark the fact that local reporters were on that story. But one of the first national stories was by our writer, Aaron Haynes, and it ran in the Washington Post because we didn't have a website at the time. We had our partnership with the Post. But it was about the case. And I'm sure most people know Breonna Taylor's name now and know about her and her case. And um, when Erin came to me with that story, you know, she said, hey, this is a story and I think that we should run it. I said, "Okay, tell me why we're running this and, you know, why it's not our story just because Breonna Taylor happens to be a woman. And she, Erin, very rightfully pushed back and said, because we don't talk about police violence against women the same way we do against men. And just hearing her say that um, really convinced me that, yes, that's exactly right. Some stories will be our stories simply because the subject, you know, kind of falls under our you know, rubric of talking about marginalized communities or talking about women. But, you know, sometimes I really want to kind of understand, you know, what is it? What's the context? What's the analysis? Like, what's the, you know, just give me a little more to understand why our readership would want to know about this. And when Aaron explained it to me that way, it was very clear that that was a 19th story. Who is your readership? Like, who, who's the audience that you have in your mind? Yeah, I think that we'll probably have a core readership of people who are, you know, really engaged in politics and wanting to understand politics and policy. Um, but we're also hoping to reach as many people as possible. And part of our distribution model is that we're free to read, free to republish. Um, we won't ever have a paywall. And any other news site is allowed to republish our work um, so long as they do it with just credit and attribution. And on our site, you can you know figure out how to do that. Any story is republishable. And the reason that we are really passionate about making it free to republish is because we want our stories to have as far reaching, uh, be as far reaching as possible. To us, it doesn't matter so much if someone knows it's a 19th story, just that they see that story and that hopefully it reflects them and their experience out in the world. So if, you know, there's a woman out in El Paso who's riding the bus and the El Paso Times happens to redistribute our story in their paper and she reads it, it doesn't matter to us if she thinks it's the El Paso Times story or if she recognizes that it's a 19th story, just that, you know, that story speaks to her and that she reads that story and that information reaches her. Does the 19th feel to you or to the co-founders, your colleagues, as a like a response to something in the media? Or, yeah. or does it feel like it's um it's its own thing? Emily Ramshaw, who is our CEO, has talked about uh, the origin story and how the idea came to her. And, you know, for her it was a response to looking at the lead up to the 2016 election and the results of the 2016 election and having a fleeting thought, you know, we really should have uh, a publication that looks at women and politics and policy and just kind of left it at that. But then as we were looking at 2020 and we had this group of presidential hopefuls in the Democratic Party and there were, it was the most diverse group of um, people running for that office that we had ever seen. Six of them were women. Um, it seemed like you know, there was 
a real energy around women wanting to be engaged and for, you know, us to be having a, a really robust discussion about gender equity in politics and policy. You know, and I think that that's actually been bearing out also in the 2020 primary season, you know, beyond the presidential ticket. We have seen, um, I think it's 183 Democratic women will be on the U.S. House ballot. 78 Republican women will be on the House ballot in 2020. And that's more than in 2018, the quote unquote year of the woman. So I feel like you are seeing a lot of women run. Um, you are, you know, hearing a lot of conversation about this, about how how to get engaged, how to be involved, you know, how to be informed. And so we, I think, are coming in at a time where that is very much a part of the national consciousness. But do you think there was coverage of that lacking? Well, there are a lot of really great publications that have been talking about um, these subjects long before us, and we stand on their shoulders. And, you know, our belief is that more is more. So 73% of editors at top U.S. newspapers are men, and 66% of politics and international stories are written by men. And that's just to say that who is telling the stories and who is kind of directing these newspapers, that does have impact on what stories are being told. And so to have a diverse set of journalists, I think, really does allow for different stories to be told that might not be told or might you know, be told and siloed in a certain section of the paper or a certain, you know, vertical on a website. It's the thing is, we're not a side dish. We're the main course when it comes to these issues. What's the reaction been like? Like, what have the last two weeks been like for you? Uh, overwhelmingly positive. I think people are excited by what we're doing. We have, you know, had a member drive and we've seen, um, you know, donations have been coming in at a really rapid clip, which I'm so thankful for the support from people. And, you know, we have been got, getting a lot of, you know, just positive reaction on social media, which I am so grateful for. You know, I have received so many texts from people who are like, they don't even know that I know you. And they'll send me texts about like, have you seen this news organization, the 19th? Like what they're doing is really great. And so <laughs> I, which is cool. I, I mean, I don't want it just being my friends and my family. That's like, this thing exists. Um, so that's been really, really wonderful to see that it's had really extensive reach and that people are overwhelmingly uh, happy to see that it exists and it's out there. How does it feel to be in this moment with all of these layoffs happening in journalism and all of these magazines struggling and you have already lived through one recession, how does it feel to be leading this place that even while it's small is ascendant and it feels, I mean, just reading the site, it feels optimistic to me. How does that feel for you? Well, I am an optimistic person, so maybe that is my imprint here at the 19th. I don't want to diminish or downplay the severity of what is affecting the industry right now. Um, it's hard to witness, and we are very fortunate at the 19th that we have a business plan that I think helps protect us uh, from some of the headwinds that the industry is facing at large. But I mean, I do feel very hopeful because I do think the work is really stellar. And I, I think that the conversations that we're having about what work will continue to come, it's got me really excited. And I hope that people see the value in it the way that I have and, you know, support us um, so that we can continue to produce it. So you're two weeks in. What does this look like, you know, a year from now or two years from now or five years from now? Are, are you letting yourself think about the 19th in that way? Or is it like, uh, we just got to get to November? <laughs> um, yeah, I am thinking about what our, you know, what the long-term ambition is. And, you know, what I really want is best case scenario. I want the newsroom to grow. I want to hire more reporters and writers and staff to support, you know, the site. And, you know, what I really want is I want it to feel like just not a novel new thing, but another part of your news habit and that it seems like it's always been around. You know how sometimes you hear a song and you're like, gosh, that song feels like it's just always existed and an artist just plucked it out of the air and played it. And now it's part of, you know, our musical canon. Like, I really hope that the 19th is, you know, a news organization where it feels like it has always been and it should have always been and it will always be there. 
It's no better place to end than that, I don't think. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer and our intern is Julianne Parker. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsor, MailChimp, for making this possible. And thanks to Andrea Valdez. She fit me in in between, like, editing a bunch of stories, and I appreciate it. Check it out, 19thnews.org. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Forum this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.